This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Welcome back to Second Wind, the podcast. If it's your first time, thank you so much for joining us, giving us a try. We're telling stories of ordinary women doing extraordinary things in the second half of life, along with all the modalities that this big world has to offer us to help us reach our highest self, our purpose, what makes our hearts sing and our souls full. And today I have a little different lineup. I'm going to read a couple of pages from a book from our guest today. She wrote this book. Her name is Mindy Corporan, and the book is called Healing a Shattered Soul. Then I'm going to share with you a press release, and then we'll jump into an excerpt of the interview we had. This is a tough story, and what Mindy has been able to do is such a heroic, brave, courageous, and loving way that she has conquered this tragedy and moved forward with her life and is serving others in doing so. So I'm excited to share this story with you. So we'll start. The headline reads, three killed in shootings at Kansas City area Jewish centers. Overland Park, Kansas, April 13th, 2014. Three people were killed by a shooter outside the Jewish Community Center of Greater Kansas City and the Village Shalom Jewish Retirement Community on Sunday afternoon. The attack shocked this peaceful community that is a suburb just over the state line from Kansas City, Missouri. The horrific news quickly reverberated nationwide one day before the Jewish festival of Passover begins. The shooter began firing a handgun and shotgun in a parking lot of the community center at about 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Two men who were targeted initially by the shooter escaped unhurt. Then the gunman fired into a truck that was approaching a parking place, killing 69-year-old William Lewis Corporan, M.D., and his 14-year-old grandson, Reet Griffin Underwood. The two were arriving so Reet could take part in auditions for Casey Superstar, a singing competition for teenagers that was going on inside the building. Dr. Corporan practiced medicine in Marlowe and Duncan, Oklahoma, from 1976 through 2003, when he and his wife moved to the Overland Park area to be closer to their grandchildren, according to a family statement. He continued to work 40 hours a week and loved spending free time with his grandchildren. Reet was a life scout and freshman at Blue Valley High School who participated in debate, theater, and loved to sing. The center was filled that day with several programs, including a fitness program for children with autism. In another part of the building, a performance of To Kill a Mockingbird was about to begin, and auditions were underway for KC Superstar, an American Idol-style contest to find the best local teenage singer. 
The gunman fired randomly into the building from the parking lot, but did not injure anyone inside before he fled the scene. Center staff members were the first to call police and to provide medical assistance to the victims, but were unable to save their lives. The shooter next targeted the retirement center, which was a mile away, and killed Teresa R. Lomano in that parking lot. He also shot at other people, but missed, then fled the scene. He was arrested later in the afternoon by police making anti-Semitic remarks as he was led away. FBI agents working with local authorities confirmed his anti-Semitic motives. Terry Lomano, 53, was an occupational therapist at the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired in Kansas City and was visiting her mother at Village Shalom, as she did each Sunday afternoon. Overland Park is a community of nearly 200,000 and averages only two homicides a year. Police Chief John Douglas said the attack shocked and galvanized the entire community. While this was a hate crime, he said, and I quote, we have no indication that the shooter knew his victims, end quote. Expressions of horror and outrage came from leaders across the nation, calling the killings horrific. President Barack Obama said, quote, the initial reports are heartbreaking, end quote. These senseless acts of violence are all the more heartbreaking as they were perpetrated on the eve of the Salome occasion of Passover, said the U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. Civil rights icon and U.S. Representative John Lewis said, Quote, it is deeply tragic that such senseless brutality should occur on the eve of Passover, the time when Jews all over the world remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. Hate itself is a kind of bondage that poisons the well of the soul. Somehow we must finally learn that it can never be a meaningful answer to human problems, end quote. So I was handed this great opportunity to speak with Mindy by a woman I met through opening the restaurant that my husband and I embarked upon in Sonoy, Georgia, McGuire's family and friends. And she and her husband used to frequent the restaurant. And Susan, I didn't even know, is the owner of Morgan Street Media Services, which is a public relations company that assists authors in getting the news of their new books out into the world. And Susan met Mindy through her work with Front Edge Publishing, who publishes her memoir healing a shattered soul. Susan writes, quote, it's been a great honor to share the news of her book with the world. It's a very important book whose message is imperative to these times where domestic terrorism is rampant and continues to break the hearts of innocent families like Mindy's, end quote. The press release reads, domestic terrorism stole the lives of her son and father. Now, Mindy Corporon shares her journey of grief and courageous kindness in an inspiring new memoir. In Healing a Shattered Soul, Mindy Corporon invites readers to join her in her search for inspiration and hope after domestic terrorism took the lives of her father and her son. Headlines about the attack circled the world, and now, eight years later, the man who murdered Mindy's son, father, and another woman is in the news as he appeals his death penalty sentence. In Healing a Shattered Soul, Mindy takes her readers inside her family's struggle, the support of their faith community, and her commitment to courageous kindness. A popular speaker, teacher, and writer, Mindy has dedicated her life to encouraging kindness, faith, and healing in companies and communities. 
Among the programs she has co-founded with this vision are Faith Always Wins Foundation and Workplace Healing, LLC. She has traveled widely to lead workshops and speak at conferences, and she also works with online events. She explained that she wrote the book for those who are seeking inspiration, for those who are searching for a glimmer of hope and faith, and for those in need of necessary supportive relationships, even in the hardest of times. In his forward, best-selling author and pastor, Reverend Adam Hamilton writes, Mindy Corporon's story helps us understand how one survives tragedy and says to the reader, if Mindy can survive this and can do what she has done, then surely I can survive the adversity I face and can bring something good from it. The book's preface is a heartfelt appeal to readers from another mother who suffered a tragic loss to domestic terrorism in recent years. Susan Bro is the mother of Heather Heer, Heyer, I guess, killed in Charlottesville, Virginia. In her preface, Susan writes, mothers lose their children to violence every day, and yet many have no time to grieve and receive, little to no public support or attention. We must hold space in our hearts and minds for them as we continue to overcome hate with love. Perhaps people should say, love always wins. I say that is true when we practice love in meaningful ways that make a difference. I see Mindy Corporon as one of those mothers doing exactly that. We never want other mothers to experience the pain and loss of losing a loved one, especially a child, to hate. I am honored to call Mindy Corporon my friend. Her book offers hope in a time of pain, pointing the way forward with faith and love. Read it and be encouraged to find your own way forward through pain and loss. And we will pick up where Mindy and I picked up in our interview. Enjoy. 2014 was horrific and tragic and, and sent us, you know, pretty much over the edge and, you know, for undercover, that type of thing. And then 2018 wasn't noticeably as difficult to outside to other people, but 2018 was almost just as hard for me as 2014 because we moved Lucas to Florida. So I basically, you know, was my son was leaving me, my other son. Right. My first, my first son was ripped away from my life, just taken, just snatched out from under me. And then my second son needed to leave. And partly because of me, he needed to leave. And I talk about that in the book. I talk about the difficulties of staying married, the challenge of being married and staying married, the challenge of parenting a child after you've lost another child. And, um, but I knew he needed what he needed. I knew, I felt like it would be good, but, but Wendy, I wasn't planning on going with him to Florida. I wanted him to go and him to have this experience and we would see him quarterly and he would, he would get better. He would, he would grow up. He would get better. He would have other people overseeing him and it would just be better. Well, then in February, it um, came to light that I could also leave my company. So now I've dropped Lucas off in Florida. And now I, the company is saying, you know what? We're okay. So I stepped down. We're good here. So because they saw that he was leaving and they thought I should go with him. They were telling me something I didn't want to hear. And then my husband, Lynn, told me that we were leaving as well, that we were going to go to Florida. And all of our plans to keep the house until Lucas graduated high school were for naught. So by June, we were staging our home and our home went on the market June 1. 
and our home sold in August of 18. And on August 31st, we were in, uh, he was driving a U-Haul truck with our dog and I was driving our, our one vehicle that we had. We sold our other car. We just had one car and we left and I cried for an hour and a half. I just cried and cried and cried. And did you leave your mother? Yes. I left my mom and my brother and his wife. So my brother, my young, I have an older brother in Arkansas and a younger brother in Overland Park, Kansas. And my younger brother and our home and my mom's home were all about seven minutes apart. They're all, and my mom had actually just moved even closer to us. And yes, so we left, we left for the benefit of being with our living child. And again, I talk about this. Yes, that I had an aha moment. I had so many. One, the other aha moment was Mindy, you know, Reed's deceased. You have to parent your living child, Lucas. And it's hard to do that when you, when you um, get only good feelings from your deceased child and your living child is angry at you all the time. Yeah. You know, what did that to- look like? But so, so bring us to that because you actually, I listened to what you had a pop, have a podcast and I listened to the one with you and your son, Lucas, and um, it was a tough time for him. Yes. And that's tough because everybody's focused on the mom and the and the the parents and not necessarily the living sibling. How did how'd that look? Well, I will tell you that he got a lot of focus. He he, oh, he, did. he he did. He had a lot of people caring for him and taking care of him. Oh good. Um, but he was angry. That was his mm. main emotion. When a tragedy happens, I've noticed that. There's something in whatever innately inside of us is our go-to emotion. You know, like, are you go-to, you laugh at something or are you go-to angry or you go-to inquisitive or you go-to sad or fearful? Lucas's go-to was anger. And Mm -hmm. he, and, and so he's quick, he's quick to get to anger. And I was his target because he knew that he could be as angry at me as he wanted to be and it should be okay. And there were times when, uh, I said this to another friend. I said, you know, when you, when you're driving your child around and you know that you want to push them out of a moving car, wow, you know <laughs> that you need help. That you need someone to come and rescue you. Yeah. So he, Wendy, he would, he would verbally attack me. Um, he would tell me that I was a bad parent. He would, he would tell me lots of things that I know he didn't mean. And it was so painful. And then I'd lost a child. But Mindy, and- he didn't blame you, did he? Um, no, no, I don't think he blamed me. No, I don't think he ever. And I never felt like he blamed me. I just felt like he was angry about the circumstances we were in. He was just, and that's what he knew. So Wendy, he needed uh, mental health care and we got him mental health care at Research Medical Center in Kansas City, Missouri in 2015 when he turned, um, he turned 12 and then, so when he turned 13, so when he turned 13, he got mental health care. And then again, when he turned 14. And what I mean by this is he was suicidal. Mm-hmm. He, he was suicidal two different times in his life and they both happened very near his own birthday. He mm-hmm. had uh, very much um, suffered from, you know, the sibling, the, the living sibling. He, he, um, he and Reet had had an argument the night before Reet was murdered. Oh. Lucas was angry at Reet, um, didn't feel, you know, they didn't have like a, they had a great relationship, but they had a sibling relationship. Right. And, you know, no one tells you 
No one tells a 12-year-old, hey, your brother might die tomorrow. You might want to make up with him. And so they hadn't made up. And then right, it's that thing, don't ever go to bed angry, right? And then, yeah, and then Reed's gone. And so we we thought we were doing really well when we had almost made it a full year in um, in 2015. We were circling around to March, Lucas's birthday. And uh, then we got a call from the school and his middle school counselor called and said, he's told a friend that he wants to, that he has planned to commit suicide, that he has oh a plan in place. And so we were taken out at the knees again. It was, it was horrific. I dropped everything. I ran out of my office like a you know crazy mama. Thank God for this, his friend who actually went to an adult and told them. Yes. Yes. Oh and gosh, she, and she is, courage. and she has given much praise in the book. And, um, her name is Peyton and she told her mom and her mom told the counselor and, and we got Lucas the care that he needed in 2015. But Wendy, it came back again in 2015. Mm. And then after that, after 15, he, he had a longer care. He was in for longer. He wasn't ever admitted. It was always outpatient, but he was still in care. For right. a significant amount of time. And that's what we talk about in the podcast. And, you know, Wendy, what was happening and what I try to point out so clearly in the book is that grief is universal. Everyone suffers from grief, but how we, um, how we grieve and then how we try to get through our grief and how we heal, there are very different paths. They're so different that even in my own household, three different people, we all grieve differently. And part of what I was doing, I was working on a foundation about faith. I was talking about my dad and Reet as often as I could about what they might want or what they might want to do. And Lucas didn't want to hear Reet's name for an entire year. He didn't want me to say Reet's name. So I had to not say Reet's name around him for a year. So my point is, is that Lucas's grieving path and my grieving path were so different. My grieving path was almost harmful to him. Mm-hmm. And his grieving path was harmful, was almost harmful to me. Right. And, um, and, and then Lynn was kind of in the middle, you know, back and forth. And so we needed a lot of assistance and we did, we did get that assistance. Um, I just want to make sure your listeners here today, uh, that Lucas has finished his freshman year at Arkansas and he is living with us this summer in Florida. We stayed in Florida. He went back to Arkansas, he went back to the Midwest and we, um, stayed in Florida and he's here for the summer and it's amazing. He, and, and I hope you heard that in the podcast. He, he did need oh, to he sounds away. great in the podcast. Yeah. He he's so mature. He got lots of help. He has um he has a tribe of people around him as well. He knows I have a tribe and part of my tribe is his as well. And they love and adore him. He's got some great counselors that he can call on his own. And he has uh, very good, strong people in his life that if he is upset with me or not sure, you know, about what mom is doing or or dad, then he knows and I feel comfortable with the people that we've put around him. Well, and it seems um, in that, at least in that, in that podcast that he's kind of got, he's kind of figuring out who he is and feeling his own way and kind of being his own man now. Yes. He was definitely living in Reet's shadow. Yeah. You know, Reet, Reet was older. And so older kids typically have, they, they're going to know what's going on in their life sometimes more than the, the younger sibling. Right. And that's just where Reet was. Reet knew that he loved to sing and was good. And Reet had a lot of confidence. And Reet was smart and had, you know, friends. And Lucas just felt like he didn't feel like he had that. Um, But then when Reet was taken so violently and so suddenly, it made Lucas even more 
um, withdrawn. And, uh, and then his, his just little emotional psyche struggled for, um, a significant time, three, three to four years. He, he really increased his maturity and his knowledge about himself when he moved to Florida and was in an environment where people didn't know his story and he could be Lucas Lowson. And it was his choice to tell them his story. And Wendy, when he was a senior and graduated from Montbert Academy, he was chosen as one of many, but chosen as a senior to read an essay out loud in front of the entire student body. Wow. And, his, and his essay was about losing his brother and about the, um, the importance of, of being inspired and having hope in life. That's amazing from somebody who didn't even want to hear his name. Very, very much That's so. That's crazy. That's yes. so good. But Mindy, like how, for people listening, I don't know, at least for me, and I, I'm hoping I'm speaking for the audience, how did you move forward after this tragedy? How did you move forward? Very um, slowly, I thought, slowly and conscientiously. I took one step at a time. A like, how do you go back to the same house? Like, and you said you, I'm sorry, but it's like, how did you go back to the same house and like turn his bedroom into an office? Like, I don't know if I could emotionally, I mean, I don't know because I, I'm not in that situation. So I don't know what I would do, but from the outside looking in, I don't even know if I could sit in that space. I think, oh, I found him in that space. Oh. I felt comfortable. I felt comfortable with him in that space just to answer that question. But let me. Let me address just a really broad, how did I do it? A yeah. pastor told me that I was pushing through grief. Hmm. I, I pushed myself through grief. I pushed myself into situations that were painful and I would sob through them. I would cry through them. I think I realized, I found out how healing it is to allow the tears to fall. Hmm. And when I thought that I had cried as much as I could cry, I could still cry more. Wow. So I went with my husband, Lynn, to clear out Reed's locker. People offered to do it for me. And I said, no, I want to do it. We went. And from the moment I got out of the car, I was crying. Tears were just flowing down my face, just flowing down my face. And here's what happened. We walked in. This is a school? This This is his high school. Mm -hmm. Okay. It must have been summer because there were no students there, but they had... um, had had all of these posters at his, at his death. The school was amazing. The students had put things out all around the school, out in front of the school, the the white poster boards with a red heart. And then it had a black RU in it, read under what RU. So there was a heart, there was a heart RU and they were post white poster boards all around the front of the school before you went in. And then when you Mm -hmm. went in, there were, there was that butcher paper, there was paper like pink and green and yellow and white. And there were messages to read all over the walls of the school. And this is a oh large public gosh. high school. This isn't a private high school. It's a large public high school. One student in particular um, had uh, ch- had the um, paper links made and people could write messages on the paper, oh, the construction wow. paper, and then they stapled them together and they made links. And we had two enormous trash sacks full of a thousand paper links that were all linked together. Um, and so I walked into this, this, I walked into the school and, and I see this as like a museum. It's a, it's a memorial to read. And, and the principal said, I wanted you to see this. It, we think it's time for us to take it down. And mm. we must've been there on a weekend. And I said, I agree. I mean, you know, there's, 
there's only so much sadness you can sit in at a time or it'll um, the dirt will get piled over your head. You know, I mean, then you'll just be down in that hole and you can't get out. Wow. You said that so well. That, yeah, you can't, you can be in the hole for as long as you feel like it's a, it's a healthy time to be there to feel the pain. But if you're there too long, the dirt will come on your head and you don't want to die down there. You want to get out because mm-hmm. you are living. So I walked in, I got to finish the story about walking into the locker. So I yeah. walked into the locker and I'm crying and we're looking at the school and we're just overwhelmed with what the school looks like. And the love, the love that these kids are showing us, it's just, it's pouring into me, Wendy. It's the love of other people. They're trying to take the pain. They're telling us how much they love him. And it's just making me feel good. So we get to the locker, our tears flowing. We reach up to the little top slot, see if anything's up there. Two checks, two checks. There are two checks up there. Okay. One of the checks was for um, yearbook. Okay. This is, this is May. And that check was written in um, like September. Okay. And it's at the top of his locker. And then the other check was for like a sign in our yard that says, you know, our Blue Valley High School student is in, you know, choir and debate or, or et cetera. It's a sign that says, you know, Blue Valley High School student lives here. So these are the checks that the kid comes home and says, hey, can you write me a check for these? Yes. And they like, and you know, and my you know where they are. stuffs it in the locker and they're in the locker and I'm crying and I, and I pull these two checks down and I start laughing because yeah. that was reet because I had been calling the school and saying, we never got the sign. Yeah. Like I sent the check. We never got the sign and et cetera. And, and Lynn and I just looked at each other and the principal's standing there and he's kind of baffled. Like, why am I laughing now? And I said, that's reet. Yeah. That's just yeah. who he is. I mean, he was just that way. Just, and so he always can make me laugh and he can always make me smile. And, um, I got through it with the help of many, many people sharing their, sharing my pain with them, allowing me to cry, allowing me safe environments where I could just go and sob on their shoulder. And Wendy, you can't cry on everybody's shoulder. Mm-mm. There, there, And there are places where people feel uncomfortable crying. And so it, it's so important to find a space where you can grieve the way you need to grieve, whether it's in the shower, in the car, in a park, at a church. Uh, at someone's home, find your space. And that's what I did. And so I pushed through grieving. I went to everything uh, for seniors that year, everything. He wasn't a senior. He didn't even finish his freshman year. He did not finish his freshman year of high school. He was murdered before he finished his freshman year. But every senior event that they had, they did a memorial for Reet Underwood. Oh, wow. And I went to every one of them and I cried through every one of them. And the parents would come up and the students would come up and they would hug me and they would hold me and they would say, we know it's hard and we are so thankful to see you here, that you that you are willing to be here and share and show our children what really what grieving really looks like. I didn't want to hide it. I wanted them to see this is real life. Mm. That's how I did it. And were you led in that direction? Like, why do you think you you took that route? I know exactly why I took that route, Wendy. When I was 16 years old, a very dear friend of mine, Kyle, was killed in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. And um, while I had support from my mom and dad, uh, that was it. I didn't, and, and the family who lost Kyle, you know, Janet and Leroy and, and their daughter, Lynn, she was my best friend. And her brother was um, killed in a car accident. And, and my life, you know, felt like it ended at 16. I had no idea that that could happen to anyone. I had no idea that I could feel that level of pain uh, when I was 16 years old. And I didn't have 
the support. The school didn't know how to support us. My church didn't know how to support me. And I suffered from that greatly. And when mm-hmm. Reet was murdered, his friends, 14 years old and older, were who came to mind. I did not want them to have um, a lack of support like I did when I was 16. Wow. I mean, if you connect the dots, it's sort of like you now are in this role to help. I'm very much in a role to help. My, my entire life right now is about helping other people heal. And, and I feel blessed. I feel blessed. My dad was a physician. I mean, he helped people medically. I helped people financially. That was my career. Reet helped people through his songs. He was just a beautiful singer and a great performer. And now I'm helping people heal. That's what I do. I help people understand that you can hold grief, sadness, sorrow, and you can hold joy, delight, laugh, laughter, all at the same time. You can hold them in the same space and that, and, and you can be healthy doing that. Such an amazing thing, how you turn this tragedy into helping others, but you, you grew up helping others. As your father and your mother was the office manager of the, of the little, you know, that, that typical small town physician, know everybody's name kind of thing. Hallmark, Hallmark movie. Absolutely. Little Hallmark movie family in Marlowe, Oklahoma. Yes. How did you, how did this book come to be? Like this book is really good and I'm still reading it. I'm a very slow reader. That's why I want it on audible, maybe someday, but. Mm -hmm. I'm working on that. It'll be working on that is good for me, but it's such an amazing book. And how did this book come to be? Because I know I've written things and they get stuffed away. It would never be anything. I would put myself out there. And this is, this is putting yourself out there. It's extremely personal. Yeah. Personal and vulnerable. Admitting, admitting mistakes I made, admitting faults admitting um, I didn't do it the right way back when or whenever. And yeah, it's, it's very vulnerable. So how it came to be, well, my dad is a, was a very good writer. My dad wrote a lot and my dad gave sermons on occasion when the pastor was out and I would see him speaking and I would see him writing. And um, my brothers are good writers. Um, I had not written a book before I had journaled. I'd had a diary and I journaled, but not, not anything that I would write a book about um, mm-hmm. until their murders. And I want to say maybe six weeks after their murders, a friend of mine who'd been caring for us, who'd been helping, she said, um, I had a vision. She said, I had a vision. She said, you have written a book and you're speaking on a stage to a lot of people. You have a really big audience. Wait, back up. A friend out of nowhere comes and says, hey girl, I got a vision. Uh huh. And she's not out of nowhere, though. I mean, she's a friend. Yeah, but I mean, did she ever share visions with you before? Or was this yes. like, oh, okay? It wasn't unusual for her. She and I went to um, Israel together too, but but her vision came way before Israel. So, yeah. So this is Lori Mallory, and she's extremely a spiritual Christian faith, very dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, she okay. does the um, Daniel fast at the beginning of every year. She's just really a wonderful woman and she writes a lot. She does she's written her own book. She writes a, a blog every week to serve well. And she said to me, I had a vision. I, you know, I think we were for on a walk or we were having lunch. And she said, I need to share this with you. 
she said, I was praying, you know, in our normal prayer time, meditating, she prays for people. And she said, I had a vision and you've written a book and you're on a stage. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to be doing that. I was so tired. Wendy. I, so, I could hardly get dressed in a day. I could hardly get dressed. And she said, write a book. And I was like, well, I'm like sleeping four hours a night. Of course you're tired. Yeah, I was very tired. And so I, um, but I did journal, um, a woman named Margaret, another friend brought me a journal and then other people brought me journals and I started journaling and I filled up journals over a four to five year period, just wrote all my feelings, anger, love, joy, messages. Um, you know, Reek comes to me in the form of a yellow butterfly and my dad appears as a cardinal one time. Wendy, the day we were leaving our home that we'd been in 13 years, the day we were leaving, I was walking through the house and down the house, it was completely empty. And I was videoing and I walked out of our basement. We had a walkout basement, walked out of the basement and up this little hill. And there were two deer off in the backyard, two deer off in the distance. So we lived on acreage with them, with the green, you know, trees, all tree woods behind us. And there was a family of five deer that we would always see, but the five of them weren't there. It was just two. It was just two deer. And to me, that was my dad and Reed saying, we know, we know, we know you're leaving. We know where you are. I always feel like they give me messages and let me know that they know what's going on or that they know where I am. And then that makes me feel like they're good. They're happy. I feel like they're happy. So I'd done all this journaling. And, and after I did this journaling, I decided, um, okay, I'd left Boyer Corporate Wealth Management. Now with my, my extra time, maybe I'll sit down and write a book. But I, I didn't feel confident in my own writing, Wendy. I just didn't. And a woman got introduced to me by two other people, you know, so this woman, Brooke, gets introduced by two different people and she wants to try writing. She's a writer and she, so she and I spend hours and hours together and I speak to her and she writes it down and we write. We submitted what we had written um, to an agent and the agent um, said it didn't have a good story art and it didn't have an, a good ending. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't the right thing. And Brooke went her own way. Brooke, Brooke left. She was Wait, looking so for Were you kind of helping Brooke with her story or was this your no. story? She was helping me with my story. She was, I had hired her oh, to okay. help me with my story. She was ghostwriting for me. Ghost, okay. That was my question. Okay. She was ghostwriting for me. And uh, we just gave it to one agent. I had one meeting with one agent. And I have to say, I felt the same way. I felt like it didn't have a good story arc. I felt like it didn't pull through the way I wanted it to pull through. Um, and it wasn't anybody's fault. It just wasn't. It just wasn't quite, quite there yet. And so we set it down completely. And Brooke, took a job with a church. She's a, a, does ministry at a local church and loves, loves, loves it. And I worked for two more years on the foundation and started another business called Workplace Healing. So I started Workplace Healing. We moved to Florida and COVID happened. And when COVID happened, um, all of a sudden now in really June of 2020, I said to myself, you know what, if you're going to get the book done and you can't get the book done during COVID, you know, when everything's kind of shutting down, mm -hmm. you, you know, you're not going to get it done. Like you better right. take advantage of this time period. Now's your time. Now's your time. And so I started the very beginning and I um, created a storyboard and I rewrote, I wrote and wrote, wrote, and I rewrote and I, and the stories didn't necessarily change because they were the stories that I wanted to tell. 
mm-hmm. but I rewrote them. I rewrote how to tell them every word that's written in this book. I wrote, I mean, I, they're the stories wow. are my stories. And I, and I took, um, the, uh, conversation about the shooting, the day of the shooting, and I pull it through the entire book. And I also, Wendy realized it's not just about me. It's not just my story. It's really about everyone else that's affected and that, and I really am careful to talk about how we heal differently um, and that people don't just get over something, you know, they just, they just don't get over it. They may still be reeling in years to come. And I focus a lot on the courageous kindness that came our way. We had so many people wrap their arms around us and their love around us with courageous kindness. And that has become a mantra for me, for me to tell people about the importance of um, sharing and having courageous kindness. So I did podcast, as you said, I, be, I became a podcaster. That would happen too. I wasn't expecting to do that. Someone asked me to be on their podcast and I started recording podcasts on her channel. And um, I interviewed a, a gentleman named Bill Timaeus. He's out of Kansas City and unfortunately has a nephew that was killed on the Boston flight of 9-11. Oh my and gosh. I, and I wanted Bill to be my interviewee for my September podcast. I wanted to talk to someone who had had that grief event and then, ex, ex, you know, share and explain his way of healing. And he was had just written a book. And so, it, you know, so we could wrap it around the book. It's called Love, Loss, and Endurance. And it's his family story of their losing Carlton Fife. And so he was my uh, podcast interviewee. And well, his publisher was Front Edge Publishing. So mm-hmm. now because I'm doing the podcast with Bill, I get introduced to Front Edge Publishing. And then that's how I met our shared friend, Susan. Mm-hmm. So full circle. And so Front Edge Publishing had conversations with me, read my 12 chapters. I had 12 chapters at the time. And really, Wendy, my question to them was, what, by when do you need the manuscript if I want it print in print by April? Because April would be the seventh anniversary of the murders and April would be the seventh year of our annual experience called seven days, make a ripple, change the world. Right. And, uh, David Crum, who's co-founder of front edge publishing said to me, December 15th. And so I finished it by December 15th. That's how it came to fruition. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. It's, it's, it's not funny, but it's, Amazing when you connect the dots and how whatever you believe in puts people in your path, right? As you, as we said right in the beginning, people have seasons, people come in and out of your path and you just don't understand, you don't know how the tapestry is all going to be woven. And then you have these people and then you write this book. What I find that you're doing right now that is incredibly interesting that we just brushed on was the grieving process is different for everyone. And weren't you, and this is one of the things that you're branching off into is, is corporate grieving, right? I I forget what you called it, but workplace healing work. Okay. Workplace healing doesn't have to be corporate, right? Right. Does not have to be corporate workplace healing, workplace healing. And you are at a function, right? And, and tell that story because again, you're at a function. I think you said you weren't even really thrilled about going. And then this person walks up and that sort of births this thing that yes. I think is so important. Yes. I had been, I had been back at the office. I'd been back at work. It was, um, 
It was when this happened, when this story took place, it was December of 2017. So again, I'm only months away from leaving my company, but not realizing that I'm only months away. I think I, I feel like I think I'm 12 months away from leaving. You thought you had a whole nother year. I had a whole other year and I ended up leaving in two months, but I'm at a, um, a Christmas party at, uh, at a bank and the president of the bank came up to me and talked to me about an employee who had lost a spouse. And he wanted to know, basically, he was asking me about the grieving process and he wanted to know when would this employee be back to full capacity for him? He needed this employee back to full capacity. And as a CEO, Wendy, I understand that. You know, we have a return on investment. We've got work that needs to be done and we care about people. But when when will my employee have full capacity? Yeah, but the bottom line, right? In the end. In the, yeah. And so I said to him, what have you done for this employee? And he paused and he said, what do you mean? And I believe if I recall correctly, he said that um, that the two of them had had lunch. And I said, have you talked to this employee about their level of capacity? No, no, he hadn't done that. I said, have you talked to this employee about what's going on at home? No, hadn't done that. And I, and I just started thinking to myself, and I gave him a few suggestions. I said, here's what I would recommend. And, and right then what I recommended is after a, after a tragic event, as humans, we typically have the ability to have some capacity every single day. And what our employer needs to try to understand is what they want to know is, when are you going to have that capacity so I can have access to it? Mm-hmm. If you're only going to have 15% capacity today, when is that going to be for me? And so we can we can use it here, and and I want access to that. And so I had wow. been thinking I had been thinking about our own company. I was the CEO. Um, you know, we were a small firm, so we didn't have in-house HR. We had uh, contracted with HR, but it was very difficult to reintegrate into my own firm. And I founded it, and I was the CEO, and it was right. difficult. So I imagined, Wendy, well, what do people do when they don't have the flexibility that I had? Right, right. And so I, re- and then I had the conversation with him and it spawned the idea that uh, as humans, we don't know what to say. And then in a workplace, we really don't know what to say. Really? Yeah. You don't want to come across as crass and say, Hey, I need that project done. Is your crying finished? You know, you, you d- but you basically know? that's what some of these people are thinking. Well, right? and they might, and they might be thinking that. And so we, so we created, I with my business partner, Lisa Cooper, we started in um, the summer of 2018 talking about what does workplace healing look like? Because the level of bereavement or the number of days of bereavement right now are anywhere from three to five days. And that's typically it. Well, no one, no one is finished grieving in five days from a loss, you know, a parent, mm-hmm. a child, a sibling. Um, and, and then if you have if you have things to do, I mean, if you have an estate plan to take care of or a home to sell or another parent to move, even divorce, it doesn't just have to be a death. It could be divorce. And I was divorced. So I know the grieving period of a divorce and what that looks like. So we started building workplace healing and what, what we are creating right now is a technological ability to measure grief in the workplace, to be able to tell an employer you most likely have this many people grieving. We have data on how many people are working and we have data on um, what levels of grief are like and how many people are affected by a death at any given time. 
And we want to be able to help employers with the content of um, what to do and when to do it, what to say and when to say it. Right. So it's, not, it's not just about what, it's about when and about how quickly you need to acknowledge someone's grief event, how quickly you need to acknowledge a trauma or an illness, because an employee will value that you have acknowledged them. And then we help the employer work from that point forward. Because, right, because didn't you say when an when occurrence like this happens in an employee's life, what was the percentage that don't come back? 58%. Huge. If their if they're, um, grief event or trauma or life event, and we call them life disruptions, we're very broad and generally call them life disruption. If an employee's life disruption is not acknowledged, 58% of those employees leave that employer because they don't want to share that story with that employer. They need to take their story and go somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. they've, they've got to tell their story somewhere else or not tell their story at all because no one wants to hear their story at their first mm-hmm. employer. So they leave. It's healthier for them, they think, to leave. Right. And then the employer loses out on that may have been a fantastic employee. Um, they lost out on all the training that they did with them. Now they've got to rehire and retrain. And so it's, it's costly to an employer. Yeah. So I see it from both sides. Wendy, because I am a, I am, was a victim of a violent crime. Um, I am now a survivor. I am a grieving, you know, mother. I can see it from all of those sorrowful positions, but I can also see it as I was a CEO of a firm who needed me back and needed me, needed my capacity and, and didn't really understand how to get my capacity back well. And I want to be able to help other employers do that. That is amazing. And as far as I know, I don't, there's not a lot of other people, services out there. It's kind of like this taboo subject forever and you're bringing it to the limelight. And especially, gosh, I just thought about this, especially now when we had all these unintended deaths from, from COVID and people are, are struggling and dealing and the workplaces that may or may not have been going full capacity or looks different are starting to kind of creep back and people are grieving and in, 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 in so many ways, it's so amazing what you're doing. You are one smart cookie. Well, I'm thank prepared. you. I, I appreciate that. You're absolutely right. But what, not about me being one smart cookie, but <laughs> you're, that came at the wrong time, but you're absolutely right about the need and, uh, and the importance of what's happening right now. And then you add, and it was needed before. And then you add on COVID, and Wendy, what COVID did is COVID helped literally every single adult understand grief and life changes. So mm-hmm. initially, when we were explaining this to people, we were talking about life disruptions. And some people look at us and say, I haven't had a life disruption. I don't really know what you're talking about. Wow. Now, everyone has had yes. a life disruption. And so we're saying, this is what we're talking about. And people are grieving over it. And so, yes. And so it does, it does play into that. And I appreciate you. Um, telling me that you think I'm a smart cookie. So I appreciate you validating, <laughs> well, you validating our idea too. Um, Absolutely. Your ideas are, are needed. And I, and I'm, I'm just amazed that you were able to learn from everything that happened, come through everything that happened and turn it all around to serve others. Cause that's really what life is all about is serving others, but you're doing it in so many different venues, like not venues, but avenues, like ways. I guess genres, different genres. genres. Yeah. That's a good way to say genres because I do, I help people with my podcast. Like you help people with your podcast and I help people with real grief, real healing podcast. 
and workplace healing and faith always wins foundation. And all of these bring me joy. All of these bring me um, joy that I am, I am helping others. And in doing so, that makes me feel fulfilled in life. And I, and I do feel like that's what God wants me to do. I, I do listen. I listen and I pray. And if I'm on the right path, if I'm, if I am on the path that I feel God wants me on, my heart hurts less. So funny that you said that. I finally went to church yesterday because I had to, because <laughs> the minister bailed us out for my daughter's wedding a week before our other minister ended up in the hospital with COVID pneumonia. Who saw that coming? Anyway, he was fabulous. And I said, well, I usually do yoga. He said, well, you have to come to church. So I went, but his message was exactly what you just said. Unbelievable. Here it goes again, was God, you have to believe in the path God puts you on, even if you can't see it. And that's exactly what you've done. Walk with faith, not by sight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Mm -hmm. And doing that and you're serving so many people because you had not only being a parent, losing their child, how that plays out in a marriage. There's many, I don't know what the stats are, but in my own world, I know there's parents that have not survived that as a married couple. It's very hard to stay married. And I understand why people don't stay married, but I also... I also hope that I can help people stay married and yes. but, you, but you do, you do have to work at it. A, a very good, a good friend of mine. I just did a podcast with him. His name's Roger Kemp. His daughter, Allie Kemp was brutally murdered in 2009 in Leewood, Kansas in a pool, in a pool area. And he was my, just my most recent podcast. And, and he had said to me, Wendy, early on, he came to meet me and he said, Mindy, 50% of marriages break up. He said, don't let that be yours. Don't right. let that be yours. It does not have to be, you don't have to be a statistic. Right. And, um, and Lynn and I have worked very hard. Um, but one of those steps was moving to Florida. Yeah. One of those steps was going somewhere that was new and, and healthy for both of us. And, and I, we just had such a great weekend this weekend. Lucas is here and we had fun with friends and, and both of us looked at each other and said, thank you to each other. You know, he said, thank you for coming here to Florida. And I said, thank you for bringing me. Oh, I love that. I love that. And your whole book and how you you just give just the vulnerable real life. This is how, this is what happened. This is normal in my world. And this is how I, this is how I got through it. Tell me, tell us, tell Second Winders, how can they find more out about Mindy Corcoran? Give me all the ways, all the things, and we're going to put it in the show notes as well. Okay. Well, one of the best ways to find out all about me is to read my book because as you book. Said, it's extremely personal and vulnerable. It is a memoir. Yeah. You know, early on, Wendy, when I was finishing the book, people said, well, what, what is it about? And I'd say, well, it's about the tragedy and then how we handled the tragedy mm-hmm. and, you know, where, what area would it go in? What genre of books would it go in? And it's a memoir because, yeah. um, and I listened to other memoirs and read other memoirs to get an idea of, of what people shared and how they shared it. Um, so I did that. That was recommended to me. So I, you know, I listened to um, Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. And that was personal. That was very personal and what she shared and deep. And so that was helpful to me. I also read the book um, Educated by Tara Westover. Mm. And that was also helpful to me in writing my own. Okay. So to learn about me would definitely be to read my book. You can find my book at um, Front Edge Publishing. They have it for sale on their site, Front Edge Publishing. It's also available at barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. Amazon, yep. 
Yep, Amazon.com. And then um, I've been introduced to Goodreads. Goodreads is a great place to leave a review if you like a, one chapter or the book. But I'm at MindyCorporan.com. So it's www.MindyCorporan.com. And my name is spelled C-O-R-P-O-R-O-N.com. And I always say all O's, MindyCorporanAllO's.com. And you can find everything about me on my website. Perfect. Perfect. I am so appreciative of your time. Sorry about the ridiculous rescue dogs. Love the dogs. Learning as I go here (laughs) with trying to have this at my farm instead of driving all over the place with the gas prices. And your time is so valuable. And the time you've taken to share your story and with me twice now, and now with the Second Wind audience. I'm so grateful. We all have tragedy. We all have things that happen in our our lives. And just learning how someone else deals with any kind of adversity can only help us be stronger and better and live more in our purpose. And you are definitely living in your purpose. I can feel it. I hope everyone listening can feel it through the podcast that your energy is just so healing. And and what you bring is, is... Gigantic. I don't know how you have time to do it all, but I know it speaks to, I know that we had talked about, you feel like you're closest to your dad and your son when you're doing your, your, your mission, if you will. That's right. When I'm doing my mission, I'm very close to my dad and my son. And I, and I feel like I'm continuing their legacy of love and their legacy of caring for people. And Wendy, I would just agree with you together. We are better together. We are better. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mindy. And everyone, look her up, dive into the book, look into her foundation. How can you help? Ask the questions, do the research, bring it to your workplace, bring it into your life. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile made you think and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.